Hi, I'm Tom Hollenbeck with Hollenbeck Coin Gallery. I serve the Colorado Springs community as a coin dealer, but also we do estate appraisals. We deal with elder law attorneys, buy and sell scrap gold and silver. We're much larger than just a coin dealer. Tom, uh, I really appreciate you taking time. This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast. And today we have Tom Hallenbeck. He's the president of Hallenbeck Coin Gallery. Tom, thanks. Tell us about your business and who you serve. Well, we've been in business for uh, almost 40 years now. We serve the Colorado Springs community and throughout the region of the Rocky Mountains. We buy and sell coins and precious metals. We also do estates, like I was saying earlier. We do buy and sell scrap gold and silver. Our average person we buy from, normally our majority of our advertising is geared toward purchasing. We buy mainly from, uh, I would say, men and women who have estates or collections that they've either accumulated or inherited that they want to fairly liquidate them. You know, I think for many folks, and I admit I've driven past this place forever. I've lived in Colorado Springs forever. You think about, okay, it's a coin shop, right? And so that's what's in my mind. So when you talk about serving the community in the estate planning side, what does that look like? Well, with, with a lot of estates, somebody inherits a collection, whether it's through a father, grandfather, usually it's the male side of the family that are collectors more so than women typically. But when they get it and they're like, what do we do with this thing? So we will literally go through from pennies, nickels, dimes, all the way through silver dollars, gold coins, and value each item and then uh, give it to the estate. We do two types of appraisals. One is the retail or replacement cost. That's for insurance purposes. So sometimes insurance companies need an appraisal or the person in charge of the estate or the collection needs an appraisal in case a Waldo Canyon fire came through and burned their house down. Or if there was a robbery, more likely uh, a theft. So they need a value for replacement costs. Or probably the vast majority of our appraisals are what we call fair wholesale appraisers. What would you get if you were selling that $20 gold piece, your Cougarand, your set of Lincoln cents? So we go through that sort of appraisal also. You know, for a lot of the folks, I don't think as they look at the front of your building, they have an idea of... The number of people here, and you know, and I, I think about for leadership in the marketing and how do you get everybody motivated in the sales process. Let's talk a little bit about because when you first started here, how many people were here? Well, it was sort of just my father because uh, we moved to Colorado. He was a curator at the American Numismatic Association, which is the world's largest coin club, and they have a fantastic museum over there. And he was the curator, which is. If you're a coin collector, that's a thrill of a lifetime. You get to play in a kid in a candy store, so to speak. So that's why he moved to Colorado. He got laid off in a mass layoff with the Numismatic Association in 1983. And he looked around and said he didn't want to go back to the corporate world, the insurance industry. And he said, what do I do? And he loved coins. So he started the coin shop with his own collection. I was in college at the time. I graduated the next year. He had grown a little bit at that point. He offered me a part-time job to work with him. To, I was always interested in coins, even as a child. So it was kind of natural to go into it. And I thought I would work with him until I could find a real job. And now, uh, you know, it's been since 1984. And, uh, <laughs> still looking for that real job? Exactly. Still looking for <laughs> that real job. But in the meantime, we grew from that, uh, my father and then myself and then another employee. And now my father, I bought him out 18 years ago this month. And now he is an hourly employee of mine. He still works two days a week. He's 87. And he's got the institutional knowledge. It, that's one of those things he still value. 
I don't think age is important from collectors. I mean, we get kids that are collecting that are nine or 10, or you get people that are World War II veterans that come in that are collecting. So they're really not an age on that. So, but we're up to 18 employees now, everything from the front end of the shop, which we use our retail showroom where we buy collections or, and we also sell up there gold and silver, also bullion. We have a back end, which is our wholesale department. We have a website where we buy and sell, well, mainly sell, mainly certified coins on the website. And then we also have an active eBay department where we have a couple people that are full-time eBayers. I think that's fascinating as we were talking a little bit about that before the show and go, how do you right size your organization? And you were talking about some of your philosophy about how you grew your employee base. Well, I've always been a conservative person. Number one, I'm adverse to debt. I don't like to owe a lot of people a lot of money and especially the banks. So I've tried to pay for it as you go along. So I've I've looked at it and tried to evaluate whether that new employee is going to bring in money. And obviously something like an eBay side, that person, you have to justify what you're selling and put it, are they bringing in money? Obviously a case like a bookkeeper, they're really not bringing in money. Your IT professional is not really bringing in money. Your sales forces is bringing in your money. The people that are buying the items, marking them up, repackaging them, shipping off either wholesale or retail, those are the people that are going to be making you the money. So you have to look at it. We've been a, a slow growth, but uh, you know, one a year or so, and we just keep adding employees here and there and then replacing ones. And uh, obviously, it's a changing market, so we have to keep up with the uh, current market conditions. I think about as you go through this business, there's a certain culture that's associated with the business that you're in. How do you take and not only observe historical culture, but also take and adapt the company like the eBay foray that you're doing? I think that's just being conscious of watching what's happening around in the world. I mean, really, you just have to be observant. You know, I go to conventions throughout the world. You know, I was just at a convention in Berlin and seeing what's happening over there and how the Europeans are doing it, how the Asians are doing it, and where the market is going. And obviously, the online side is an expanding, growing area. And how do you take advantage of the online side of the business? And how can you retail on online? And that's the biggest challenge. And eBay is a different version. eBay is obviously an online auction. You put it up there and you just sell it for whatever it's going to bring. Whereas if it's your website, you can control the pricing. You can control the items you put on there. And usually it's the higher quality material that you're more interested in uh, finding the right collector for. For some of the folks out there going like, I might have a need to see you about, I have an old coin collection. I might have a coin collection I'd like to insure. Any number of those things. So what should they do to pursue those types of objectives with you? What should they see or experience when they come through your front door? Well, the first thing they probably should do is probably organize it and have an idea of what they have. A lot of people literally just bring in a tub of stuff with no idea what they have. And that's fine. If they have no interest and they just want to dump it, that's fine. But I think a knowledgeable person is always going to feel better about the process. So if you know you have a father's collection of silver dollars. Let's use that as an example. Morgan dollars. If he was an avid collector and collecting by every date, mint, mark, and condition, most likely they're going to be much more valuable. The question is, 
there's kind of three types of collections that people had. There's the true collector, that the guy that was out there, and I use guy because the majority of collectors were men, but there are quite a few women too, that the person went out there and they wanted to fill their silver dollar collection. They bought every Carson City, every Philadelphia, every San Francisco, every Denver Mint. They bought all of the dates and mint marks and they were uh, had a good eye and they bought them by condition. And those are going to be generally fairly valuable coins. There's the other that is more of the accumulator. Uh, we see a lot of the person that was the, oh, uh, let's say somebody that lived through, that was a child of the depression and they just didn't trust banks implicitly. And they just saved every silver dime, every silver quarter, every silver half dollar they could. They saved wheat pennies. And maybe they bought a gold coin here or two along the way. Those are going to have value too. And it could be just a silver value. And you hope that they got lucky and got something of value in it. And then there's the last is just the hoarder that just saved everything. And then they just saved bicentennial quarters and bicentennial half dollars and Susan B. Anthony dollars and, and just stuff. And we have to do a lot of that. We'll, we give a lot of stuff back and say, hey, just deposit this at your bank. There's really no collector base for this. But these are worth double face value. And these are worth 10 times face value. And this one coin, this is your key. This is your three-legged buffalo that's worth $850. So that's what we're always hoping for in the coin. And so they come in and, you know, I'm assuming they'll make an appointment. I'd say probably about a third make an appointment, probably two thirds just walk in. Okay. And then, so somebody greets them and they say, I have this collection. And then there's the process that they go through and you go, you either have something, nothing, or somewhere in between. Yep, exactly. And we just kind of sort it out. And luckily, this is one of probably the best thing that when I took business home from my father is we did computerize everything. We really went fully computerized in 2012. So every, it updates the spot price of gold instantaneously, the price of silver. So we actually have all of those values, put them in the computer system. So whether it's a 1973 proof set that's worth four dollars or a, a modern silver eagle worth sixteen dollars and fifty cents or a one ounce gold eagle worth you know twelve hundred and ninety two dollars. It puts it all in there and it, it does all the adding up and everything there. So the only real requirement is you have to be at least age twenty one and we do have to fill out a police report. So everything is reported to the police in case it was stolen. It goes through a company called Leads Online, which all the police departments throughout the United States get so they can monitor if you are a prime suspect in a crime or something to that effect. My opinion, the coin business many years ago kind of had a stuffy, staid, stolid type of reputation. And innovation has arrived, I think, in your industry. What did you do to incorporate or promote or foster innovation in your business? Well, I'd like to think that we, uh, by going overseas and seeing some of these foreign mints, I really try to pay attention with what they're doing and who they're gearing their new clients. So they have large marketing departments, whether it's the Royal Mint in England or the Royal Canadian Mint, obviously in Canada, or Deutsche Mint. They look at who are they marketing to and how are they they're geared, or the United States Mint. Don't want to forget the United States Mint. And they're gearing it towards younger people. They really are looking for the new collector. How do they bring new collectors in? So they're making new material, whether it's proof silver eagles or proof sets or commemoratives for whatever event, World War I last year, and they're gearing their commemoratives for that. So I think we have to follow what the mints are doing, which are really the producers in our industries. They're the producers. We're the secondary market. And then follow what they're doing and try to kind of copycat a little bit what they're doing. And they're very good at what they do, these foreign mints. And they're they have a ma uh, very massive marketing departments and 
there's millions of collectors throughout the world. And we just kind of piggyback a little bit on top of what they do. You know, the things I would have thought of, I wouldn't have thought of a marketing department or a mint, just not in my vocabulary. So that's cool to know. You know, and for you, going from first generation, second generation, and you got to watch your dad build the business, then you bought the business for him. If you were to talk about the best thing you do in your management insights, what would that be? Well, I, of course, wasn't trained to be a business owner or trained to be a business manager. I kind of worked my way into it. So I think of ours as more of a family business. So I treat all our employees as family. I would like to be as flexible as possible with all of them. For, so my management style is I'm a hands-on. I actually work on the coins. I actually help customers out every day out front. And, and a lot of what we do is stories along with... It's not just a coin. You know, a coin is a coin and it has X value. But a lot of times the coin is much more value if there's a pedigree or something on it that makes the coin more interesting. It's not just that item. So I've always been a manager that rely on my key employees. I have two people that have been here about 20 years now and the internet side. And I let them do what they need to do. But at the same time, we have a meeting. So we're all on the same page. We have weekly meetings just to make sure that we're all focused on the same goals, so to speak. We talked a little bit about the human resource side of the house and, you know, and how that contributes to success and so on. And you had a, an insight that I think many would probably love to hear. Well, a few years ago, I had a business consultant come in and give me some advice. And I was a little skeptical about him having come in, but I thought, oh, why not? So I, I paid a little bit of money, had him come in and evaluate our business. And he came out with the thing that I don't really like the management or, or I don't really like the human resources side. I enjoy the coins and the stories and the history and the money aspect of it. And the human resource side is the part I enjoy the least. So he said, why don't you get rid of that? So I uh, hired a, a management company that does my human resource side. Now, I still do the hiring. So when, But they will give us direction on how to do the hiring. They'll give us candidates. They take care of the payroll, the 401k, the retirement plan, all of those things that, that I think is important to do. But I hate to get muddled in paper. I don't want to spend all my time on the computer and doing paperwork and compliance issues, whether it's 1099s or Form 8300s. Or, there's so many just forms and paperwork that is involved. And that's to me, that's also something I'm not making money. If I'm doing paperwork and filling out 401k reports detrimental to the business. So I would rather pay somebody else to do that. And that's what I did. And it's made life so much easier. It's really been, and I use a company here in Colorado called ERC, which is Employee Resources of Colorado. And they take over my human resources portion of the business. And it's been a blessing. I think that's, you know, know what you do best, know where your money comes from, delegate what you hate, either not good at or don't contribute to the bottom line. In looking at the business, there's been an evolution of what you do. And there's some level of creativity that you brought to the table here. If you were to say, what's the, the key component of the most important creative approach that you take to your business, what would that be? Well, I would go back quite a few years. I would say probably the biggest thing that uh, after I bought from my dad 18 years ago, my father luckily really did step back. He said, okay, you bought this and he relinquished control and he allowed me to make decisions. We were only six employees at the time. And we just, and he let me make the decisions. We were not 
computerized it all the time because he's just of the generation that didn't do that. So we got into the eBay and the other aspects, the computers, uh, but we also changed our whole marketing, the way we marketed. Back in the day, you marketed through yellow pages in the newspaper. And that was pretty much what yellow was... Do you, do you want to have bread? On yeah. That too? And they really, we still do small yellow page ads, but that's more for the small rural communities down Southern Colorado where they don't have a high internet speeds, you know, where there really are some older retirement communities. But for most people, so we really went in a new direction. And probably the most interesting thing we did was we started doing radio commercials, or I'm sorry, television commercials. So, oh, we're on the local news. We do uh, every evening, Monday through Friday, in two of the stations, we have Precious Metals Report, the gold, silver, platinum prices. One of the stations also puts stock prices on there. So it blends the, the gold with the stock market because pretty much everyone else is not doing anything like that. And we also do run a series of commercials. We're always running two commercials simultaneously. And about every two years, we update them based upon back for a while, long time. It was uh, ship your mail into the gold or ship your gold to a company far off and somewhere, put it in a package and send them to them. They'll send you a check back. And there were a lot of gold buyers that were coming into town. So we were trying to look at ways of going against those, so to speak. And we Luckily, we got in the market before them, and we'll be paid more than they did. And we advertised, and the television made my daughter, who's now in college, a little high. She was in junior high at the time, made her a little celebrity. So it, it's raised the profile of our business. And the main thing is, we do always run two commercials all the time, and one is a branding commercial. That's basically who we are and what we are, and how long we've been in business. And that's always done a version of that. We updated about every two years, and then the other commercial is something usually most relevant at the time, which has been in the past, just buying collections, what we buy, what are we interested in, gold or silver, flatware sets, scrap gold, and and things to that effect. So we've done a series of commercials over the years, and I find them to be highly effective. You know, it's nice to know that you actually have a return on investment for the branding effort. Well, and the other is, of course, it's with the internet. How do you advertise on the internet? And there's so many people that are always trying to take your money here and there, and you really have to sit back and evaluate. Do you want to go with a, a Yelp or do you want to go with YP, a Yellow Pages, or how you do that? And you have to really do your own analysis based upon, are you doing Google clicks? You know, Are you getting paid per click? Or how are you doing that? And which is your best return for investments? And and that's one, I think that really varies a lot by business. Yeah, and the channel and where your clients hang out. Yeah, and, and we find with a, a hint for the television is we always advertise on two of the three major channels, you know, between ABC, CBS, and NBC. Do two of the three and always keep one in the, in the wings wanting. So, and then you'll switch over every few years and you'll add one and take one off. So you always have... Keeps everybody uh, sharpening their pencil. Exactly, exactly. So we always do two television stations at a time. In thinking about... At the heart of your business and growth, you're an entrepreneur. So if you were going to, for a person that's either starting a business, taking over a business, second generation, what hints would you offer them if they were taking on that role for the first time? Boy, you know, I, I would say a couple things. Number one, I'd try to be as active in the community as you can, whether it's Rotary Club, Sertoma Club, you know, get into some community activism of some sort, whatever interests you. For us, we have local coin clubs. I'm on the board of the Numismatic Association or was on the board. Now I'm a, an advisor. Get involved somehow with that. Probably the one of the other best things I ever did was when we changed banks a few years ago, I really got to know some of the bankers. 
to have a, a friend in the banking industry where you can call up and run some questions by them and not just as a business question, but as a friend. And the bankers, I've been lucky. I've had some great bankers and one in particular at First Bank and he's a friend and he gives me good advice. So I've had, uh, and the other is through some of the clubs I'm a member with, I've met some really good attorney friends and getting just kind of bouncing attorney advice, you know, just, uh, hey, I'm doing this. Is this okay? And and they'll say, oh, sure, that's no problem. Or, you know, just uh, just to get basic advice from uh, professionals in other businesses. It's simple, not necessarily easy because it takes time. No, and, and tell you what, I just happened to run in uh, when I joined First Bank. It was a toss-up between First Bank and Western National Bank at the time. I picked First Bank because they had one person rather than a couple people that were tag teaming. It turned out the best choice. That other bank has changed a couple of times. Those people are no longer there. Vice president, I deal with it at the time, is now moved up to president. And mm-hmm. we even see each other on a periodic basis. You know, once a month, we'll have a dinner and go out and talk about some of the things. And it's nice to be able to have in a casual climate and, and a friendly event. And I'm sure he wants to know what's going on in my business, but I'm also picking his brain about interest rates and, uh, you know, overall what's happening in the banking industry. An informal business partner. Absolutely. So, you know, for you, folks probably have a misconception about what you do or your, your role as an entrepreneur. What would you say the biggest misconception is about you here? Probably that I'm just buying and sell coins. You know, a lot of people just think I'm a, the coin guy. And there's nothing wrong with that because I like being used as the expert as the coin. So, I mean, whether it's jewelers or estate companies, they come to me and ask me about coins, you know, because that's what I do and, and I'm glad to do it. But well, we do so much more than that. And I think that's, and I don't know if that's a misconception or just, you know, people are used to, the majority of coin shops, if you go to coin stores across the nation, most of them are very small mom and pop operations. They're really basically collectors that decided they want to get into business. And they just, and almost like my father did, but he decided uh, he wanted to be, I'm just started a business without really having any business experience or business knowledge. And they really are unprepared for the just running a, a day operations of business, whether it's your phone service, your yellow page ads, your trash service, your pickup, your lease, if you're leasing the building, your security systems. There's so many different areas to get into that are time hogs. And I think a lot of people just think they can just start a business and they start a business. And it's uh, there's so much more to it. To be successful or be in any length of time. Well, and the other thing is really, I think you have to be passionate about your business. If you don't like ice cream, you shouldn't own a Baskin Robbins. You know, if you don't like coins, you better not be in a coin shop. You know, whatever you're collecting or if you really like automobiles, maybe you should be an auto dealer. You know, so it depends what you like. And uh, I've been blessed because I grew up collecting coins and my father allowed me and he hired me. And it was probably his early version of a secession plan, even though I don't think he planned about it at the time because he was, I guess, uh, even it was in his late fifties when he started and when he opened up the shop. And I don't think he was thinking about retirement at the time, but now it's, now I'm thinking about the secession. How do I, you know, are any of my children going to be taking over the business? And that's, uh, my oldest daughter has got a good job and company called Epic Systems in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, she has no interest in the coins. My uh, middle daughter is just graduating from University of Colorado, and I'm going to see whether she gets a job right away. If not, I'm going to try to hire her as a part-time employee and see if I can maybe 
get her interested a little, and she has worked a little bit. She's been on some of our commercials over the years, but she's also uh, worked part time in the shop. So I might get her in there. And then my son is just getting ready to start college. And uh, he's one of those computer nerds. And he likes sitting and looking at screens all day long. And I'm hoping I can get him to be interested in, in numismatics or the coins. And it's been good business. So uh, gives me a lot of freedom. And I'm hoping that uh, one of the two children might be interested. But it's very, very obvious that your passion for this business drives your motivation. How do you take in and get that same level of motivation through your employees where they stay motivated year after year to be in this business? That's always a tricky one. Number one, I think you have to get the right people in that have that basic interest or the, their personality. There's almost like a collecting gene that you either have the gene or you don't have the claim. It's hard to teach people to be a collector of whatever it is. And uh, one of my main key employees, Chad, he was an employee at the Numismatic Association. He was a part-time, he was an intern. We interviewed him and he really, so he had the basic interest and he had the basic knowledge. So we hired him away from the Numismatic Association and he's been here for over 20 years. Other people, like I just recently hired someone who was working at a mattress company, but it's not always about their knowledge before they're here or their level of expertise because a lot of that we could train them. In fact, sometimes it's easier to train somebody that doesn't have numismatic experience than we hired collectors in the past. And sometimes they're too interested in looking at the coins and, and rather than doing our process. So I think it's, like I said before, we do have monthly meetings and we have some giveaways. And I just try to treat everybody with as much respect and give them, but everyone kind of, everyone has their own role, whether it's, you know, uh, working up front, buying collections or wholesaling in the back or eBay or shipping, or there's different uh, roles, but especially in the front end of the shop, there's multiple, you pretty much have to both buy and sell and everybody gets, there's a lot of overlap. And uh, I, I'm always watching to say, hey, if they get busy up front, I'm sure to run up there and help out. Or if they have a question about the authenticity of a 1909 SVDB, I want them to run by me because SVDB. That's uh, yeah, it's a rare penny. It's probably <laughs> worth about a thousand dollars. Unfortunately, the Chinese are counterfeiting a lot of them, and they're sold all over uh, places like uh, Alibaba, oh, where yeah. there's fake silver bars and gold bars. There's a lot of fake stuff out there, so I don't want to pay a thousand dollars for a penny. That turns out it's worth a nickel. So if it's a high value item, I'm going to, myself or Chad, we're going to go up there to double check to make sure it is authentic that we are buying. Because the last thing I want to do is sell something that's fake also. And there's a, luckily there are, there's some legislation gone through recently and they're starting to crack down on a lot of the counterfeiters. But the 1909 SVDB with a 1909 penny, a Lincoln cent, the first year of Lincoln cent, minted in San Francisco. The, hence the S, and then the VDB is the, the, the designer's initials on the back. And they took them off shortly after that because they thought it was too prominent. They thought he was being a little bit gaudy by putting his initials. And by taking them off right away, there was only a few hundred thousand with them minted on there. So the coins, uh, the, for a penny, it's worth a thousand bucks. I want to make sure it's a real coin. <laughs> so I think about it as you get up on the typical day, you know, and you come to the office and you got to go, we're going to go hit them again particularly after you've been doing it so long. What's that habit or personal self-talk that you use that keeps you going, keeps everybody focused and pointed? What do you Well, you know, it, it's like a daily treasure hunt. You know, I really don't know what's going to come in. You know, every day 
I mean, I had a, a lady in there. They brought a whole bunch of old, really cool Greek and Roman coins in that she had got from years ago. And I'm going through them, and I was excited because there's a nice Athenian tetradram from uh, Athenian, so obviously it's from Greece from about 400 BC and in nice condition. So it was really cool. It's, it's things like that. You just don't know. It's not the same thing every day. I mean, really, I don't know what's going to come in. So. I mean, I bought a really cool Mormon $5 gold piece here about a month ago, which was a gold coin struck in 1849 in Salt Lake City from California gold. So it's just a really cool coin. So I say it's really the just the wonder of what's going to come in. Now, getting everybody else motivated for some of those, it's more of a job for them because they're getting paid by the hour and stuff. And, you know, we try to make it as fun as we can and we try to have potlucks and we you know, we make sure everybody's treated with respect. And luckily, all the people get along well. I think it's on the whole hiring process. When we brought the, you know, the new guy in recently, kind of let him walk around and we showed him to everybody. So almost like kicking the tires on a car and see how they got along. And then before we did the hire, we kind of asked the employees, hey, what do you think of, you know, and we brought a couple people in and uh, thought he was nice. And, uh, you know, everyone needs to know kind of their position. And I don't really have any one motivational tip because we're really not into sales. Uh, we have no quotas or anything else, and we don't have to hit X number of new. I just need to make sure that people are follow the system we have on the computer and uh, that they, they're competent in what they do, and we kind of overlook what they're doing. So, With the adoption of social media kind of across pretty much every business platform, for you guys, what do you see in the social media space and for you? How do you use social media inside your We started a few years ago, but then we kind of backed out a little. We had some computer issues and we had some people leave on the computer side. We got to reorganize that a little bit. But we use, of course, there's LinkedIn. Personally, uh, we use Facebook for the store. Of course, there's just the online reviews. You know, the main thing is make sure you, the most important for business, I think, is to have good online reviews because you have to be and I always was feel, feeling shy in the past, but now we don't really feel as shy anymore because I think it's almost commonplace is to ask someone if you had a good, give us a good review. Go online if you, if you could spend five minutes and give us a review. And to ask for a review is, I think, more important than people realize. So I think uh, you just can't wait for everybody to do it. They need to be told what to do. Yeah. Well, just because, especially if they had a good time. And the whole key for us is we want people to walk out whether they had a coin they thought was worth $1,000 and we turned... A lot of times we have to tell them their rare coin is worth a nickel. You know, that they have that 1943 steel pen that they read that was worth $50,000. No, that's the 43 copper penny. Yours is only worth a nickel. That we want to make sure they walk out not disappointed and not upset that they learned something. And they walk out going, yeah, I know why it's only worth a nickel and why it's not worth $50,000. So we need to educate everybody that comes in because. Sometimes we even make collectors. If people come in to sell stuff, they end up not selling it because they end up liking it because now they know what they're buying or what they were going to sell, and they walk out with it. And I have no problem with that either it's because now we maybe we developed a, another collector. So. Which helps down the road. Exactly. So with that being said, how do folks find you on social media? Well, they pretty much have to go through either Facebook. Or I don't think we have a LinkedIn other than me personally under Tom Hollenbeck. And then your, your website for the company is? Is hollenbeckcoingallery.com. Okay. Two L's, B-E-K. B-E-C-K. B-E-C-K. Yep. Yep. Hollenbeck. So, in fact, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, we got uh, 
more active social media a few years ago when I was president of the Numismatic Association. I was doing lots of traveling and I was doing updates, whether I was at a conference in Terramino, Italy or Bali or in Germany. I was doing a lot of traveling and I was doing updates on that. I kind of got away from that. I should probably get back to it again, but it's just so many things going on. It's hard to really get the time. It's hard to carve it out. It is. Especially, I just like working on the coins. So I will all of a sudden, two hours have passed and I've just been working on coins. So it's sometimes it's hard to focus on some of those things, the social media, which I think is necessary, but it's not the area I've really, it's underserved to me. I need to focus on it more. Delegate, right? A delegate. Well, no, I want to do it. I really want to do it. I, I want to start doing more, uh, even little YouTube video clips and things like that. I think it's important to do. We were talking about that a bit before. You have the knowledge passed on from first generation. You have all of your experience and you with the Newsmatic Association and society. And, and you have all this experience and it's all trapped between your ears. And you think about how do you memorialize some part of that institutional knowledge that resides there. And you think about for successive generations because something happens to you, it just goes away. Well, uh, the, one of the things that uh, last year, the Numismatic Association, they interviewed myself and my father in an hour and a half long, uh, what they called the Legacy Series, which at every major convention, they'll pull a person out and they interviewed it and we, they put it on YouTube. So they do realize that I think there are a lot of people that realize, hey, whether it's your father or your brother or yourself, that if you can sit down with an interview and talk about whatever your expertise is, put it on the internet, then it's going to be there. And it'll be there, I hate to say forever, but for a long time. That's correct. It's funny. Part of the reason I do this, I lost my father years ago and he was in the Pacific in World War II in the Navy. And I wasn't so much interested in the, the combat stuff. I was interested, how'd you get food on board? How did you get a letter from home? And some of the stuff he'd tell you, like he had a romance with fruit cocktail until he ate like a number 10 can full of it. And then he, his romance ended at that point. Well, that's where the Numismatic Association has been pretty good. They've been going back and interviewing a lot of the famous people. Just going back and tell us your first convention in 1954. What was that like? And all the guys are in fedoras and coats and smoking cigars. And, you know, it was just a different time, but just some of those experiences. And unfortunately, I mean, I said with my grandfather, he died when I was a child, that my dad tells the stories, but they're not from him that. If you can video, I think it's important just to go out and to everybody. Yeah, my grandfather was a gold miner both in Nome and in Colombia and never got to talk to him. So that story is patched together at best. Going back to the coin aspect of it, that's where the coin is. It's not always about the coin itself. It's about the story behind the coin. That's where we always tell people, if this was your grandfather's $20 gold piece, write it down in a snippet. Well, Who this was? It's like we see old photographs in the States. There's no writing. You don't know if that's Aunt Martha, if that's who that is. And it ends up getting lost in history. If someone had just written on there, 1907, Aunt Martha Smith, New York, New York, then they would have known who it is and they would have been able to preserve that. So with the coins, if you can say, hey, this is my great-grandfather, carried this through World War I as his lucky charm, put that down on it. That's going to mean something to your kids or your grandkids down the road. Otherwise, it's just a silver dollar. Have you ever heard of the Flying Five? I've heard of it. What is it? It's two twos and a one. It was my father's first paycheck in the Navy. And he has a $2 bill, which I still have. It has the name of everybody that was in his unit. Oh, yeah. We call those short snorters. 
the short snorters, yeah, that was very popular in World War II. Let's say the original person was stationed in Pearl Harbor as their training, or maybe they were in Kentucky and they moved to Pearl Harbor. Everywhere they went, they would take a note, sign uh, all of their buddies, or quite often the commander, and then they would tape them together. And some of those are six or eight feet long. This guy, he said, Dad said it was just, hey, they called it a flying five. That was a paycheck. And so I've got one of his, the, he said, I never wanted to be broke, so I always carried the $2 bill. Oh, okay. And so that was his deal. Okay, yeah. yeah. You know, and so it's the story. Well, it's about the, how can you document it? You know, that's the most important thing. Can you document it? Because uh, the pedigree or the... Uh, that does go a long way for the value of a lot of things, not just coins, but other material, whether it's paintings or. Yes. And it has meaning to your family. So, as you go through here, and many business owners we talk to have a favorite quote. So, one that resonates with you? Well, I'm a historical person. So, I always like the his- historical quotes. And one of my favorite people is Ben Franklin. So, uh, he obviously, with the Four Richards Almanac, he had. A gazillion quotes. It's great. But I wrote my favorite two down. One was, well done is better than well said. So that was one of his. That So I've always been a hands-on person. I always think lead by example is some of those. So well done is better than well said. And the other, my favorite one is, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. So those were the, my two business ones. You know, there's lots of beer quotes and other things that Ben Franklin had. But those are my two favorite business quotes. And I think it's not what you say. It is what you do, which is the current version. And your kids, they watch what you do. That's right. Pretty much all the time. And that's where I think employees, if they see you working diligently, and when we do have downtimes, and we don't have a lot of downtime, there's a lot of stuff activity here all the time. They're usually catching up on something. They're refilling the supplies. They're redoing orders. They're Well, you were walking down the hall. There was something in the floor, and you picked it up. Oh, yeah. Like every other business owner on the planet. Yeah. You get to do it all. Well, that's right. I mean, my dad taught me that from years ago. I mean, when there was only three of us, two of us here and then three is, I mean, you take out the trash, you wash the dishes and you clean the cases, you know, with the glass cleaner and you vacuum it. So as we've got bigger, we actually have cleaning services that come in and do a lot of those things anymore that are the more mundane things. So it depends what you like. I mean, uh, I still like washing my car at home. I find that's kind of a relaxing thing. I like to go out on a sunny day in the summer and wash my car. Could I go through a car wash and spend 10 bucks? Yeah, I like doing it. Well, you certainly see where all the dings are when you wash <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> if you were to offer advice, you know, best advice maybe or business intelligence to a small business or startup, and you go, you're getting ready to build your business, and then at some point, you're going to exit that business. You're second generation in this business, what advice might you offer those folks to think about building the business for transition or transition issues? Well, that's one, of course, I've been thinking about as I think as you reach a certain age and gosh, I've been doing this for over my half my life has been basically in the coin business in this building. So as I'm looking at transitioning out uh, in another, you know, I figure I've got 10 more years, something like that. I don't know exactly, but somewhere in that range, what makes it easier to transition. And uh, I'd say the as a, a process, I, I do think there's, uh, I've been to a couple different meetings and a couple different seminars where people tell you some of the ways. How do you transition out? How do you prepare the business? And I think it's just a lot of it is just thinking about it yourself. I never really sat down and seriously thought about how am I going to transition to business? What is the value of the business? Is the value of the business inventory? Is it your name? Is your location? Is a combination of all those things? 
Are you going to sell it to a national broker that has brings in somebody that buys your business? Are you going to be a part-time person for two years training the person? Is it going to be a, a son or a daughter and you're going to gift it to them or are you going to let them buy into it? How are you going to do it? So I don't know if there's one other advice other than really start seriously thinking about it and going to maybe some seminars or listening to some podcasts or reading some books about transitioning out. And every business is so unique because ours is extremely inventory heavy. So a good chunk of the value of the business is is inventory. So where there's a lot of businesses that they have no inventory. So it's the inventory is not relevant part. It's the client lists and the contacts and the other things. So I would say determine the type of your business, uh, what it is, and then seriously look at it. But understand the value drivers for your industry. Yeah, exactly. So if you were to look at it in your industry and, and go, has there been other shops like yours, have they sold? And I don't even know if that's information that you could glean, but it would be useful to know. Well, unfortunately, most of them are these smaller mom and pop shops. So that number one, they don't have a large inventory. They don't have a large employee base. And, you know, the two of the most recent ones I can think of, the owner died and they closed it down. The family sold off the inventory and it's gone. I mean, it's just total liquidation. So there's another one that one of the guys died and the two guys said, well, hey, though, the brothers of the deceased owner, they gifted the shop to part-time employees, but they had no inventory. So they gifted them basically a shell of a shop with the cases, with the name, with the phone bill, with the advertising costs and said, you take over as of now. But the brothers got zero out of it. They took the, but these guys have been kind of struggling because I think they underestimated how much inventory or how much resources you have to be able to if someone comes in and wants to sell 20 Kugrans, you better have $26,000 available to write them a check. Mm-hmm. Or else if they say you can't buy it, then they're going to go, what? You can't buy 20 Kugrans? Really? So the last three that have closed down in Colorado Springs have just liquidated. So you, and that's, you don't know whether typically it's certainly an indicator of failure to plan. But one of them was just a hobbyist anyway. I think it, he, one guy just did it because... He was kind of semi-retired and just wanted something to do. And it was just a, it was more of a hobby than a business, really. So there's some of those. But a lot of the smaller hobby shops across the country, whether it's sports cards, stamps, a lot of collectibles have really gone downhill in the last year. Luckily, coins are one of the ones that has survived through the recession pretty vigorously. So it's really the coins have not fallen off like some of the other collectibles. There's a lot that are. Unfortunately, we're 10 cents on the dollar. I hate to blame anything on millennials, but I, I like to say the millennials have changed the world in a lot of different areas. I, I was talking to some of the days, my wife likes antiques. From what I see, millennials shun antiques to some part, and they're more interested in something else. I guess they get tired of stumbling over mom and dad's antiques. Well, yeah. I mean, even the way they build a house. I was talking to a home builder the other day. They don't build houses really with formal dining rooms anymore. So therefore, you don't have a place to put your china buffet. Therefore, you don't have your Hummels and your glassware and stuff. And the idea of a sterling silver set and a regular flatware set, the idea of your everyday China plus a special China or a crystal and glassware just doesn't resonate. And I don't know if that's just even millennials. That's just changing norms. Yeah, I suspect it's cyclical. And with the yeah antiques, uh, some of them are, the question is, can you ship it on the internet? And that's where a lot of that stuff. So the antique shop itself has even changed. So Coins, luckily, because they're so small and compact, there's certification. 
So there's authenticity is guaranteed and the grading is pretty, and it's just perceived. It's much more of a perceived value. Everyone knows a $20 gold piece is pretty valuable. So uh, whereas you don't know about, you know, a lot of stamps, you know, unfortunately stamps are one that have taken a hit and uh, I don't see a, a real cycle coming back in the near future. No, just because you look at the, the kids out there. Well, and too, you look at the, some of the stamps of the 30s and 20s, our countries that aren't here anymore, you know, and they were stunning. I inherited some stamps. And you look at them, and nowadays, you kind of go, that's not collectible. Well, that and uh, the kids today, the millennial, well, my son, who's 18, they barely know how to, they don't write letters. I mean, tell a kid what, why you collect a stamp. It's a self-adhesive stamp that says forever on it. You put it on there. Why am I supposed to collect this? It doesn't really resonate with the younger generation. So I think that's something that the philatelic society, and they've really got to uh, concentrate on. I look at theirs, the Numismatic Association, the average age of, you know, demographically of the American Numismatic Association is male, mid-60s, and making, you know, 250000 a year or something. So you look at those demographics, it's, it's generally the older white guy, so to speak. How do you break into that? But we see a lot of kids coming in our industry. There, we see a lot of kids that are collecting, you know, and that's whether it's Boy Scouts or other things that there, there's a lot of kids collectors. And then there's probably 12 to 20. You see a lot of collectors. Then they go to college, they get married, they raise their kids. And then you see a lot coming back in their, I would say, late 40s, mid 40s on. So you see, but there's a gap of those 20, 30. And that's when you're raising a family, you're buying your house, you're really focusing on your career. It's more people that are my age that all of a sudden you go, hey, my last kid is out of the house. I'm an empty nester as of a couple months, and I can actually take vacations when I want. I can collect what I want. I have more available income. And that's what a lot of the collecting clients that we see. That's like the website when we put a $1,000 coin or a $5,000 coin. We have our, most things are between $300 to $3,000 on our website. And the average person that collected is typically a middle-aged male. And I'm a history buff. I love history. I like even reading historical fictions. And that's my, you know, everyone likes reading about different things. Some people like reading about golf. Some people read historical fictions. And I, I like being able to put, when I'm reading about Julius Caesar, I think, oh, I can have a denarius from Julius Caesar. And, and they fit together very well. Well, you know, I, I tell you what, it's, it's a real treat to be able to spend some time with you and get to understand your business. And for the folks out there, um, doesn't really matter where you are in the country because you're online as well. If you have an interest or question about what you have in the way of a coin, the only mistake you can make is by not reaching out and uh, saying hello. So again, appreciate your insights. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I'm uh, thrilled that you invited me on this. And uh, it's a novel. It's the first time I've done this. And I hope I did okay. You did great. But uh, it's been a lot of fun. No casualties. No casualties. That's right. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thank you.